All right, we're doing things a little different today. I'm going to speak, then we're going to sing at the end. It's, it's a heavy sermon for me today. And, oh, that thing's just got quiet. You're worried it's going to be heavy for you too. I've tried to lighten it some, but let me just be honest with you. I've walked through this one for about the past two weeks. Uh, this one's tough. It's on favoritism and partiality. You guys have any issues with favoritism or partiality? Raise your hand. Okay, those of you that raised your hand are honest. Those of you that didn't raise your hand are too worried about how others see you in order to raise your hand. And so, no, I'm just kidding. Last time we went through James, we learned that true, genuine religion guards the tongue, it helps the helpless, the widows and the orphans, and we said that it remains unstained from the world. James and his flow of thought is going from the tongue, the helping, the helpless, and staying unstained from the world. Then he moves to partiality. When he moves to partiality, he's going to talk about the poor and the rich. He's going to tell us that we should do and we should say things as though we're looking in mind for future judgment. So as he's talking about this, he's continuing a flow of thought from the helpless and how we look at the poor, how we look at the rich, how we tend to look at them the same way the world looks at them rather than how God looks at them, how we tend to not want to help other people, and how we tend to use our tongue to say bad things about people who are not like us. And so there's a continuous flow of thought here that we see in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Genuine faith includes the needy and does not exclude the needy. Genuine faith is selfless and not selfish. Genuine faith is other-centered and not self-centered. So if you're here this morning and you want to check yourself, do I have genuine faith or false faith? How do I treat people who are not like me? Is it all about me? Am I self-centered or am I other-centered? If you're here and you say, I know I'm a believer, I know I'm a follower of Christ, but I want to do the check to see how mature I am in my faith. If your first thought when you see somebody that doesn't look like you is to talk bad about them, to make fun of them, not to help them or to judge them in the way of the world, your faith is immature. If you're still engaging in the locker room talk of the world, your faith is immature. We have to be above those standards, and no matter who it is or no matter what they look like, we look at those people and we see somebody that Christ loved and Christ died on the cross for, somebody made in the image of God that God loves just as much as he loves me, just as much as he loves you, and so we treat those people with the same dignity and the same respect as we do ourselves, loving others as we would want to be loved ourselves. That's a mature faith. So check yourself today. Where are you? You get to do a self-test, a self-examination, examining your own heart as to where you are in genuine faith in response to Jesus. James chapter 2, 1 through 13. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a man wearing shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who loved him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law to, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Dear Lord, we pray today that you would help us to accurately see ourselves, where we are and who we are. And Lord, may we be more conformed to your image and have your heart for all people on this earth. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. All right, in our text today, I'm going to move through it quickly. In our text today, we have one basic command. We have one main point. The one main point is that genuine faith shows no favoritism. The actual command in chapter 2, verse 1, is not show no partiality or show no favoritism. It's actually hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But as you are holding that faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to do so without favoritism, without partiality. That word partiality translates a Greek word that literally means receiving the face. So as we look upon somebody's face, we make a judgment about them. We, we look at them and we immediately begin to place them as a person we would like, as a person we're skeptical towards, a person we want to identify with, a person we want to be friends with, a person we have question marks around. And this is what James is talking about when he says, my brothers, don't show the partiality, don't show favoritism as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here we know, and we heard, just a couple of weeks ago here in chapel, that the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance. Talking about David in 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says, and I quote here, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Romans 2, 11, Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 3, 25, all say that God shows no partiality. So as we understand theologically, we should know that when God looks down, he didn't look down and grant you salvation because of your looks or because of your intellects or anything other than just mercy and grace at the cross. God didn't choose you because you're better than somebody else. God is slow to anger, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance and faith. So when we look out on this world, when we look out on people from different cultures who look differently, with different skin colors, with different customs than us, we should look out at them with the the mind of Jesus and with a heart for the gospel. We tend to show partiality to those most like us. We all, I believe, tend to show favoritism. Make sure that in the church, we do not show favoritism. James, as he's making his point here in verse 2, goes to an illustration Verses two through four, you see this illustration of favoritism. He says, for if, and you can see I've got marked for you on the screen, there's two ifs and then there's a then, and there's also judges. And that judges is important because it connects back down to to verses 12 and 13, which tells you that this one passage is a passage that hangs together. You look for those textual cues that says this passage clings together. And down in the second half, we're going to see the word partiality mentioned again, which links it back up to tell us this is all one textual unit that he's talking about. So he gives this illustration and it's just an illustration. He's saying for if there's conditional there, if a man wearing a gold ring We understand from history that that gold rings at this time could even be rented. You could rent them to wear them so that you could show your status. And if you were wealthy, you would walk in with a lot of gold rings. Now, if you did that today, we'd probably look at you funny. But if somebody walked in with a Rolex watch on, if somebody walked in in a nice Armani suit, we have our own tales of wealth. We have our own ability to show that you're a wealthy individual. If somebody drove up in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, somebody lands in a private jet, you begin to look at a person and say, man, maybe they're a wealthy person. So here's the example. He walks in, gold rings and fine clothing. Then a poor man. 
This poor man has on shabby clothing. It, it's to indicate as though maybe he only has one change of clothes. Perhaps he smelled a little bit. Perhaps he looked a little shabby. And then there's another if, another conditional. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and you say to him, perhaps you get up and you say to him, you sit here, you sit in a good place. And in this time, not everybody was sitting down. People would be standing, people would be sitting on the floor, but they're saying to him, you take the good seat. You take the seat where there might even be a place to put your feet. We want you to sit in a fine place. And in in their mind, perhaps they're thinking, this guy could help us with his tithes and offerings. This guy could help us to pay for some of the ministries we're wanting to do. This guy could be influential to us. If you say to that guy, you sit in the good place, but then a poor man comes in, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or you say to the poor man, if you really have to sit down, come sit down beside my footstool or perhaps even under my footstool if you take it more literally. And so perhaps what James is giving the visual of is you're saying to the rich guy, you sit here in the really nice seat. You're saying to the poor guy, you sit down at my feet. You move out of the way. We don't want to have anything to do with you. That's the illustration. He says, then you have made distinctions among yourselves and become judges. Note what he says, though, judges with evil thoughts. Why evil thoughts? There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being poor. God looks on the heart, not on the outward appearance. If we are judging as the world may judge as to what somebody could do for us, that is a self-centered, selfish concept, and those are evil thoughts. We are judging with evil thoughts. One bears every mark of wealth, the other of poverty. Rick Warren, when he was preaching a message on this passage, gave several different ways we could discriminate. We can uh, discriminate on the basis of appearance. If somebody's good looking, we automatically raise them up in our book. If they're ugly, we automatically drop them down in our book. You can discriminate on the basis of ancestry, on the basis of age, on the basis of achievement, on the basis of affluence. What do we do? I think in modern society, it might even be a little different. I think we're okay sometimes if somebody walks in and they're dressed a little more casually. I don't think that bothers us. I think we tend to look at somebody different if they're handicapped. I think we tend to look at somebody different if they don't look like us, if they have some type of deformity. I think we look at somebody different if they have autism or some form that causes them not to be able to keep all of the cues of society, to be quiet when they're supposed to be quiet, to speak as they're supposed to speak, to be able to carry on a conversation. I think sometimes we shy away. We don't get to know people like that. We don't reach out to people like that. I understand that that's probably some of the more common things that we do in our society that James might address. He goes on after he gives this illustration that underscores the command that he's given us, and he moves to some of the reasons why we should not do this. We get one in verses 5 through 7. Favoritism dishonors man and God. Look at what it says here in verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers. You'll notice there again he uses brothers. In in chapter 2, verse 1, he uses it to show he's changing subjects just slightly. Here he's saying, my beloved brothers. He said, God has not chosen those who, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, and he gives you three things here, are not the rich ones, number one, the ones who oppress you, Number two, the ones who drag you into court. And number three, the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Here he's saying favoritism dishonors man and it dishonors God. God has chosen the weak of this world. Think about this. Our Lord was born to a poor couple. He spent his first night in a manger because there was no room in the inn. The first people who were to find out 
that the king of the universe had been born were poor shepherds in the field as the angels went to make the announcement. He lived in the city of Nazareth. He learned to trade as a carpenter. He had no place to lay his head. In his most famous sermon, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think about Jesus and who he has chosen. Think about the Old Testament and those that he picked over those that we would have picked. He often went with the second born or the last born rather than the first born. He often went with those that the world might look at and say that one. And he would say, no, not that one, this one. And so when we look at ourselves, when we look at what God has done, we look out with mercy to all people, recognizing that we are not the ones that the world might have chosen either. He said, I don't like that. I don't either. But it's scripture. First Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So I've got bad news for you. In the eyes of the world, we may not be the brightest, we may not be the most powerful, we may not be the most noble, so we should have no pride or nothing to boast in. But I've got good news for you, because the one thing that we can boast in is that we are children of the King, God Almighty, the ruler of the universe who died on a cross to redeem us from our sin, to reconcile us to him, who is coming again one day, and that is all that we should boast in, is that we are sinners saved by grace at the mercy of the cross. God has chosen the poor. We cannot dishonor the poor. We cannot choose like the world would, the rich that would oppress us, the rich that would blaspheme Jesus, the rich that the world respects. In fact, this happens in the academy too. It happens because we have those who have earned PhDs and worked hard and they write books and they want to be respected by the rest of the academy. But we know when we look out upon the worlds of the Harvards and the Yales and those schools which are wound up in their secular humanistic worldview, they look at our worldview which holds the Bible to be the infallible and errant word of God and we cannot seek to compromise so that they will say to us, you are doing well in the academy because as soon as we try to get close to them, as soon as we try to have them say we're doing good work, there are moments where they're going to look at us and we're going to realize we've had to compromise things in standing for Jesus Christ in order to be accepted by the academy. We should do good work. We should have the best scholarship, but we should do so boldly standing for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, not worrying what the world may say about us, but only worrying what Jesus Christ is going to say about us and looking to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we need to do here at Cedarville. He continues on. Favoritism dishonors man and God. Favoritism also violates God's law. Look at verse eight. Verse eight, it says, if you really fulfill the royal law, the royal law, he's here talking about Leviticus. We see this again in the, in the greatest two commandments of Jesus' teaching, the law of the king. Here in the royal law, according to scripture, it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Again, here he's reporting back to Leviticus 19, 18, which says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
Leviticus 19.15, though, also says, do not be partial to the poor either. So here we understand that James, knowing these things, he doesn't look out at the rich and say, you're excluded just because you're rich. He doesn't look out at the poor and say, you're excluded just because you're poor. He looks out at all people and he says, God's desires that all should come to salvation. The cross is big enough for all of us. And every person is a sinner who needs to be redeemed by the king. And that's how we should look out at the world. Verse 9 here in the text mentions partiality, which ties it back in to the earlier portion of the text. Verse 10 mentions uh, here that uh, those who keep the law in, one, in every point but one fails, they're accountable for the whole law. Now, there's two applications for this. The believer who thinks, that's eh, just a small thing. It doesn't really matter if I just violate this one thing. I mean, after all, everybody shows favoritism at some point. This is not a big deal if I'm partial. It's not a big deal if, I'm fa- if I have favorites, is it? It's just one little portion of the law. And James here reminds us, he says to us, no, for you to break one portion of the law is still wrong. There are no really small portions of the law. For the person here who may be evaluating, am I really a believer? Am I not really a believer? Do I have genuine faith versus false faith? Or for you, as you go out and share the gospel with others, there are many who believe that if I can just tip the scales into my favor, they see God's law as a scale. And on one side are their good works and on the other side are their bad works. And they know their bad works. But for every bad work they do, they think if I can do something nice, then all I have to do is tip the scales just a little bit in my favor and I'll be okay. If I can get just a C plus, then I'll be okay before God. And they have this works mentality of the law. And James here is saying, no, that's not it. The whole law is what we have to keep. Perfection is the standard. If we break one little portion of the law, we are guilty before God. The law is not a scale. The law is like a sheet of glass. And if you break that sheet of glass, it is all shattered. It is all destroyed. It's not like a scale where we earn our way to heaven or where we do good works. Here he says to us, favoritism violates God's law. Continues on, verses 12 and 13, he tells us that favoritism ignores our future judgment. He says, so speak and act. You see what he's doing here in his flow of thought. We're gonna turn in the very next discussion to works and we're gonna turn into how we respond to things and what we do later in the book and already earlier, he's talked about holding the tongue. He's still continuing those thoughts. He's saying, so speak and so act, do things and say things as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's already mentioned the law of liberty before. He's talking here about the entire scripture. He's talking here about the commands that have been given. So speak and act as those who are to be judged. Because if we remember there's a judgment coming, we behave differently, don't we? Have you ever audited a class? Anybody in here ever audited a class? Yeah, me and my wife, are we the only two that's ever audited a class? I audited a class. I audited the class for the first two weeks. I was a really good student for the first two weeks. And then I realized that I was busy and I didn't have to take the test. And after the first two weeks, I wasn't a really good student in that particular class anymore because I was just auditing the class. There was no judgment to come for me. If you're in a class and you're signed up to get a grade for the class and you know that grade is gonna go into your transcript and affect scholarships, there is a judgment coming and it affects the way you take the class, at least for most of you right? You study, you prepare, you want to do well, because you know there's a judgment coming. Here he's saying to us, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Look at what he says next. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This should scare us. 
If we look out at others and we see them at face value and we say, oh, you're poor, you, you don't matter to us, and we condemn them, or oh, you look differently than us, or oh, you come from a different background than us, and we show them absolutely no mercy, the Bible says that when we're judged, we're not going to have mercy. Now, you know the condition of your heart. I know the condition of my heart. I know the depravity of my own heart. I know that my heart is an idol-making factory. I know that even when I'm doing good, I can become prideful about the good things that I do so quickly that I turn it up on my own glory and away from God's glory. I know the wickedness of my own heart. I don't want to be judged without mercy. I suspect you don't either. So when we look out at this world, when we look out at others, let's have mercy because here at the end of verse 13, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, very quickly in this particular section of scripture, we could get overwhelmed. This tells us not to be partial, not to have favorites. We know we are predisposed to do so. This tells us we have to keep the whole law, not just one part of the law. If we do one part of the law wrong, we violated all of it. And the weight of this begins to bear down on us. And we begin to say, we cannot stand under the weight of all of this. And I would say to you, that's good. Because once we recognize we can't stand under the weight of all this by our own works, we plead to the mercy of the cross and to the mercy of Jesus. And when we recognize that we need his mercy, then we are much more quickly apt to show mercy to others. So remember here that mercy triumphs over judgment. We lead into the next section of scripture, which talks about works and talks about justification. It talks about faith. And we must recognize that all throughout leading up to that particular controversial section, James has laid the gospel throughout. He has put hints towards the gospel. He has talked about mercy. He has talked about grace. He's talked about the law of liberty. All of this leads us into that next discussion. We should have mercy. You know, often what we do is we tend to judge others by their worst actions and ourselves by our best intentions. If we want to have grace, we should judge others by what we think their best intentions may be. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Charles Colson, in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, tells a story of how he influenced diverse interests when they would come through the White House during Nixon's term for re-election. When the guest arrived, the, the book tells the story, he would escort the guest past the looting guards down a long corridor lined with dramatic photographs of the president in action, he would pause at the executive dining room, point to the door, point to the door at the right and say in a hushed tone, that's the situation room. The legendary super secret national security nerve center. Actually, it was just a crowded office. The real command center had been moved to the Pentagon, but they didn't know that. Next came dinner with richly paneled executive dining rooms lined with red-jacketed Navy stewards, the tables filled with cabinet members and senior staff. Here, Colson's clients began to melt. Even the avowed enemies sometimes offered their help. If they needed more work, he would treat them to a walk upstairs and a reverent walk through the Oval Office. If the president was there, Colson would ask, always by prearrangement, if the visitor would like to see the president. Quoting, Nixon was a master at the game. He always gave his dazzled visitor gold-plated cufflinks with the presidential seal. The person would be overwhelmed as he left, almost bowing, not more than 60 seconds later. It's not easy to resist the allure of the Oval Office. Invariably, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs of the Oval Office. No one ever showed outward hostility. Most, except the labor leaders, forgot their best rehearsed lines. They nodded when the president spoke, and in rare instances when they disagreed, they did so apologetically, assuring the president they were personally respectful of his opinion. Ironically, none were more compliant than the religious leaders. Of all people, they should have been the most aware of the sinful nature of man and the least overwhelmed by pomp and protocol. 
But theological knowledge wilts in the face of worldly power. End quote. Let me say to you, to myself, may we in the church not demonstrate favoritism or partiality. May we look upon all people with the grace and mercy of the gospel and offer them the hope of salvation and reconciliation to their creator. As we evaluate our own faith, genuine faith versus false faith, as we evaluate the maturity of our faith to be mature followers in Christ, may we look at ourselves and make sure that our faith includes the needy and does not exclude the needy. May we look at our faith to make sure that our faith is selfless and not selfish. May we look at our faith to make sure that it is other-centered and not self-centered. When we have a self-centered faith, we become our own idols. We need to look out and focus on others so that we fulfill those great commandments. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving others as we love ourselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, when the thoughts cross our mind, when the words come across our brains, that we would not say them. Lord, when we have thoughts of of how we think we're better than other people, may we quickly dismiss those thoughts and repent. Lord, may we look at others with the eyes that you have, with grace, with mercy, with love. And Lord, may we be quick to share the gospel. May we be quick to offer mercy. And Lord, may we not show partiality while we hold the faith of Jesus Christ, our Savior.